So we're the um, podcast that uh, discusses libraries and books, reading, everything to do with our favourite topic, books and libraries. So look, I'm Catherine and I'm here with my colleague Nissa. So look, today, Nissa, we've been discussing, talking about uh, individuals and technology, society and technology, how these various new technologies are impacting our lives. So perhaps you want to uh, discuss, uh, well, tell our uh, listenership uh, what we're going to discuss today. Sure. So we're looking at three books. So the first one is Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Might Drive Us Apart. And that's by Rachel Botsman. Um, it was published by Public Affairs in 2017. The next book we're going to have a look at uh, is Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. And that was published by Penguin Random House in 2017. Max, I believe, is uh, a professor at MIT. Uh, he's a, like a Danish-American. The third book we're going to have a look at is actually a... Well, it's a long-form essay, so it's part of the quarterly essay series. Uh, and it's called Net Loss, The Inner Life in the Digital Age. And that's by Sebastian Smee. Um, and it was published at the end of 2018. Uh, Sebastian is, I think he's an Australian art critic who writes for the Washington Post. Um, and the long form essay is, well, his thoughts about how technology affects the inner life of individuals. Oh. First off, starting with you, Catherine, uh, you were going to do, I think, the Rachel Botsman book. What did you think about it? I think you said you were quite impressed with the book. Yes. Well, Nissa, um, initially um, this book didn't seem very appealing and yet I found it very accessible. So Rachel Botsman is um, considered to be a, uh, an expert in trust. Now that's a, an interesting concept, but I mean, who knew that there were experts in trust writing in our community today? But, you know, her previous book, which I had a bit of a look to find in our library, is called What's Mine Is Yours, The Rise of Collaborative Consumption, is actually um, a topic that librarians can gain a lot of insight to. Because, you know, we are in an industry, public libraries, that um, actually um, practice collaborative consumption. So, you know, it's it's kind of um, part of our DNA to, I think, for librarians to think this way. And uh, Rachel Botsman is like a very accomplished um, writer and a speaker. And uh, if you want to catch up with her TED talk, it's um, up on YouTube and I was, uh, and the transcript is there as well. So, um, yeah, very, um, yeah, sort of very interesting new kind of breed of a female um, writer that's kind of across technology but has really good communication skills. And, um, and, and even though this book um, explains, tries to explain concepts, the new technology, that to perhaps, you know, other generations who haven't been brought up with um, the technology, the apps, the social media that we have today, uh, will find it successful. Uh, for example, Bitcoin. 
didn't really know much about it. And, uh, you know, she's been able to explain this in layperson's terms. But um, so basically what she argues is that um, we're at a tipping point um, in our society. So there's a transformation in human history. So really big concepts. And well, what she's arguing is there's uh, monumental consequences for everybody. Um, because, you know, look, some of the examples she use is, uses is, you know, the first thing your mum tells you is don't trust strangers. <laughs> You know, don't get into a car with strangers. Now, we find that there's all these trust apps, these business models that are going from strength to strength. Uber. Yeah. That's, that's definitely getting into um, a car with a stranger. Yeah, that's right. So she talks about different kinds of trust and um, that particular kind of radical shift in trust is, uh, well, she calls it distributed trust. Um, I know that's just a word, so it doesn't necessarily explain what it is. But I mean, it does imply that we we do trust in um, these um, apps like Uber to be um, uh, reliable, to be safe, and um, you know, sort of be a, a business model that are appealing, and you know, particularly to the younger generation because, um, you know, they're often very competitive, so they're, you know, they're a viable way for people to um, access services. And online, what could be more natural for younger people? Isn't that interesting that in this time of eroding trust um, in governments and, like, formerly institutions where everyone would look up to, like, we're now moving to trust all these, all, all these apps and stuff through technology. I mean, I wonder why that is that we would go like trust people or tr people or services through a technology app but not so much in person or like governments which you know you would think would be the recipient Good of so much trust. question. Well so that's exactly getting to the core of uh, Botsman's argument um, because what she's arguing is the people in charge aren't trusted politicians aren't trusted banks aren't trusted you know the community have a deep distrust and disdain, in fact, for the um, previously institutionalised and, I suppose, um, uh, seats of power. So I guess in a way this kind of distribution, as she calls it, of trust is almost a natural thing that slid in alongside the new technology. Um, so, you know, for example, artificial intelligence, bots, um, you know, um, the, uh, um, the sort of, um, the, kind, the kind of things that are going, that going forward, we're going to have to trust algorithms that you mentioned. Um, there are, it, based on science and maths, I think our society has to go with that concept. But she often refers back to things, for example, like uh, 11th century traders in North Africa who had to keep track of um, their agents in Europe. And she talks about how like, the concept of trust isn't something new. It's always been... Um, you know, in our psyche, we, we do trust people that we don't know. Sometimes, sometimes it's tribal or familial 
religious. Um, there's there's all sorts of dif different kinds of groups of people that we're inclined to trust. Even when you think of it, word of mouth, when you, you're looking for a tradie, for example, I will often ask one of my colleagues if, you know, in fact, they've, um, they've had some work done. And I mean, you can, when you look on social media, you can see that um, all the reviews that uh, come up on all the various apps and websites, um, you know, even choosing what you're going to have for takeout tonight makes it so much easier. It's not sort of a complete quagmire now. It's all very navigatable. So what do you think about that, Nissa? Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like a very interesting argument. What I wanted to ask, you said that she was a researcher. Is it very, um, you know, statistic heavy, the book? Uh, do you find, or is it, uh, do they have lots of charts and diagrams and all of that in the book? You know what, Nissa, there's a lot of research gone into the book. So there's uh, statistics, there's some charts and diagrams when she explains Bitcoin. Thank I've got it. Um, but... Um, in terms of her being accessible, she's often very anecdotal, uh -huh. and you know, you know, for example, you know, referring to things that occur in her family. It's interesting, you know, because I do find this with um, writers these days, and particularly female writers. You know, what really interested me, Nissa, I was just looking at the her acknowledgements at the end, and this is this is quite significant. She literally thanked. Um, the people who look after her children, her school, she named the school. And that is such uh, like an interesting, you know, for a, obviously a powerful, like a, you know, a woman who's an academic, she's driven and ambitious to, to think, to, because, you know, that's, you know, part of, say, the role of parents is to think about their, their children. And while she's out researching and writing books that are really interesting for us to read, she's acknowledged her children's school. But is that just like a female thing, do you think? I don't think a guy would do that. But anyway, that's another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> going very well back to the actual idea of trust and she wanted to mention the people that she trusted and that's what helped her write. I, that's possible. Well, indeed, because, you know, we, we do have to um, share um, the burden of our family life these days yeah. and um, it's, it's a business model, yeah. the whole thing. So, look, you know, I would say I was really pleasantly surprised. This was quite, quite compelling. Um, I think... Uh, you know, I recommend that you read it. And yet, as I said, I'm going to grab the collaborative consumption book and read that because I think for us that's got a lot of uh, gravitas. So, you know, thought-provoking, accessible for sure. And, um, yeah, I think I just learnt a lot. So it was a good read. So pick it up, people. Yeah. Okay, so um, moving on to the next book, which is Life 3.0. So that's the one that I've only just started reading, so I'm not uh, that far into it. It's by someone called Max Tegmark, who, um, like your author, uh, makes a lot of appearances online on YouTube. I think TED Talks as well. Uh, so, I mean, it's a topic that the author talks um, about quite a bit. Now, just to explain the title, Life 3.0, um, if you think about it, so one of the examples given by the author is that Life 1.0, if you want to think about it, is like bacteria, right? So they, they don't learn anything, they just exist. Then you've got Life 2.0, where, you know, you learn different skills, uh, you know, culture, new languages and so, so forth. So if you think about it, in some ways, it's upgrading your software every once in a while. Life 3.0 is something that doesn't exist on a 
big scale now, but it's something we're moving towards. And that refers to not just, I guess, updating your software, but your hardware as well. So um, like knee replacements, cochlear implants. So those sort of things along with all the other um, skills you've got going. And AI um, is part of that. So the book is, like I said, I've only just started reading it, um, but it has been received quite well. Um, the author, he has in the book taken a really sort of broad look at AI and technology. Um, so he doesn't really focus on one aspect. He, he packs in a lot, like quite a lot, and he gives you just enough for you to be able to get a taste for the topic, topic and then go off and do some more research or buy some more um, books on the topic. But he covers a fair bit. Uh, what does he do? Uh, he uh, talks about what AI is. He talks about how it relates to the law, um, to ethics, the economy, science. Uh, it looks at how AI looks um, now, like what form it takes now, what form it could potentially take in the next few thousands of years. Uh, politically, the, the how, you know, currently um, you've got AI, how that affects that and so forth. So he's taking a very broad look at everything and he, he makes references to, to literature and culture and all of that to, to sort of demonstrate his point. Um, it's... The book itself, it, it covers a lot of interesting ideas um, and he talks about, oh, it, it's really hard to really describe it actually because there's so much that he packs in and it's so full of charts and images. So I was thinking if there was an audio, I'm sure there's an audio book for it, but if you were listening to the audio book, I think you might have a little bit of trouble following it just because it's so jam packed with, uh, you know, charts and images and uh, diagrams and, and that really helps illustrate the point. Um, one complaint I would have about it would be that the current version that we've got in front of us right now is a paperback version and all the charts and the images and so forth are in black and white and because it's the it's so densely packed with information and there's the the text is just like crammed into this little book I think it would have done much better by being a bigger book in color um, and I think it could people could get so much out of it if, if that was the case because then you could have you know a lot more white spaces and then the charts and diagrams and people could follow it a little bit more so that's one thing that I would I would say that it could have um, improved um, it has some really interesting ideas packed into the book like um, uh, the concept of neo-luddites um, who believe that new technology should be allowed but only if we're confident that they will do more good than harm mm. um, there's also an idea of totalitarianism 2.0. So just like the book George Orwell's 1984, um, if you think about it, there's surveillance going on in such an unprecedented scale through phones and like web searches, email, credit card transactions. Uh -huh. So that's just something worth thinking about, like the political ramifications of that. Um, there's uh, the, his when he's sort of theorizing what form AI could take in the future. He wonders that if AI will conquer the world, will humans be allowed to live? So that's that's something worth thinking about. Yeah, Nisara, uh, I was just going to ask you about that uh, crucial argument regarding the bots taking over. Yeah, and he he does refer to the fact that a lot of our understanding of AI comes from the movies. So it's like Terminator or The Matrix, and that has created this. <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah. when Hal just takes over and ignores 
instructions. Yeah, and that's that's his idea um, that, and that's what he talks about, like this fear people have that AI uh, beings will, you know, take over. Will um, ultimately wipe us out and kill us. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, he's, <laughs> but he's also saying, look, it's, it's not so much... It's, it's not so much, uh, there's a lot of scary potential um, of AI and it's been well, you know, popularised in, you know, in popular culture and all of that. Um, but he goes, it's it's more for us to think about, they won't necessarily be evil, but you could, it's worth thinking about that, look, if they we're making them so efficient or we could potentially make them so efficient that they will do their job, but what happens at the point where our goals and their goals sort of diverge? And that's worth thinking about. And one of the really, really good things he mentions, and I quite like that, he goes, look, we're talking about, you know, AI and how we protect ourselves from AI should they become, like, evil, like all the, the robots in Terminator or whatever. But he goes, maybe if we think about things like resolving international conflicts before they escalate into an arms race of autonomous weapons, and that's worth thinking about. So if you're thinking about each side in a war and they both develop AI and, you know, um, you know, sort of this super technology where you've got autonomous weapons that can wreak havoc on like either side. Well, instead of trying to like outdo the other side in some sort of arms race for the most intelligent, you know, designed uh, weapon, why don't people resolve on the things on things they can do, like resolving international conflicts before they get to the point where you will need like a better, uh, you know, more better technology to like eliminate each other. Mm. Resolve the issue before that happens on a human level, so you won't have to deal with that. You know, because he's saying it's inevitable. Like technology is going to develop. Um, so I mean, there's there's only so much you can do to stop that. And at some point, you know, you won't be able to control it. But maybe work on yourselves as human beings and try to improve that. You know, before you get to the point where you'll need to be worried about like what the what the robots will do, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good uh, point, Nissa. Yeah, so I, I, I quite like how he did that. Um, he talked about that. And I think he also, um, he also said this really good point where with uh, an AI economy would actually allow us to live like ancient Athenians um, who could indulge in art and democracy only because they had slaves. So that's worth thinking about as well so the you know you've got like robots in the future um or intelligent beings in the future who will do everything for you all domestic chores all the menial stuff you don't want to do sounds good yeah yeah and and in some way so basically they'll be like slaves um but if you think about it the, the culture and art and all of the other things could flourish because you don't have to work with all those like you don't have to spend time doing all those menial sort of things anymore mm. so it's it's complicated it's complicated because then you know like some of the themes in uh, books and movies um there can be a moral dilemma when for example machines become i mean robots become almost human yeah and there's that really gray line and there's many many examples yeah of that occurring, as you know. Yeah, and that's... And Even that's, um, oh, um, Blade Runner, for example. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what he's saying. Like, this argument is so complex and it touches ethics and politics and economy and all of that. And he thinks we should be talking more about it. Politicians should be talking more about it. We should be making efforts to, to improve the world, not just focus on the fact that, you know, technology... Like, be afraid of technology in the sense that it's going to take a particular path and it's going to be the end of us all well it, it, it's probably still going to do that but why not focus on you know fixing the world now 
and establishing high ethical standards exactly. around exactly. artificial intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's probably what a lot of what is saying. But like I said, I'm only just into the book. There could be a lot more to the the argument than just that. Sounds so good. So, I'm yeah, going to read so it. So that's Max Tegmark, and like I said, there's quite a bit um, that he's put out online that you can actually listen to. Mm, like, but again, but again, the book it's it's a small. The version we've got is a small. Uh, not quite pocket size, but it's a penguin one. Um, but I, I personally think if it was only larger and the illustrations were colourful, true, because I'm be so much more. I'm looking at it. I think. Yeah, agreed. Okay, yeah. but still. Yeah, but still worth reading. Worth so reading. Don't don't let uh, that put you off reading. No, indeed. <laughs> the last one I'm going to have a look at is a quarterly essay. Now, uh, quarterly essays, the library. We get all of the quarterly essays, don't we? Almost yes, we do. Least. And always interesting, um, sometimes controversial topics, um, but uh, really current, um, cutting-edge topics that everyone reads needs to read. Oh, absolutely. I especially love the, um, oh, gosh, there have been some really great political ones in the last few years, um, yep. some written by, I think David Marr wrote an interesting one, yep, George I think Powell. Yeah, we've done. I think we've done a, a podcast. Yeah, where we've mentioned them. So yeah, go on. Definitely worth checking out the quarterly essays. Um, so this particular one is called Net Loss: The Inner Life in the Digital Age, and that's by Sebastian Smee. Now, um, the essay itself is not very long. So if you look at a typical quarterly essay, uh, the beginning is well, most of it. I'd say about three fourths is taken up by the actual essay, and then you've got response to correspondence in the back um, followed by information about other publications that they usually have so it's it's definitely definitely worth one of those publications um, you know to sort of read on a on a regular basis mm. and it sort of straddles that odd um, you know gap between uh, a magazine or a, a periodical and a book because mm. often a lot of the uh, quarterly essays have been transformed into books I know there was one Gosh, I think it was some political leaders, I think, and they combined it or they did some more research and fleshed it out and made it into a book as well. So uh -huh. they're definitely worth checking out. Um, so this particular one talks about the inner life. And when when the author refers to inner life, he means, you know, it could be your soul, yourself, your consciousness, um, basically the part of a human being that is affected by, you know, a beautiful sunset. Um, you know, that sort of obscure part of us that social media algorithms can't touch. True. Yeah. And, Point. Yeah, and the and the author is it's sort of the, the form the book takes, uh, well the essay takes, it's it's not um, very structured. It's more like musings on the topic. And uh, when he's musing on the topic it sort of touches on art and literature and technology and all of that. And what the author basically says is that um, on social media, for example, there's a lot that we share. We share our, you know, uh, we're liking pages, we're liking pictures, we're posting pictures, we're uh, tagging places that we've been to. And that allows algorithms to build up uh, this idea of who we are. Um, and in some ways that is useful because obviously you get then recommendations based on what you already like. But in other ways, it's actually quite harmful because, for example, a really good point he made was that, I think we were talking about this before, Catherine, um, you only then on Facebook are exposed to things that the algorithm knows you will like. So uh, views from people or news items that sort of echo what you already think. So basically like an echo chamber. 
you, know, you sort of end up being, which is not uh, the healthiest thing to be in. So while things like Facebook are quite good at making connections with different people, so the Me Too movement, from what I understand, uh, you know, was had a lot of support in the beginning because of social media like Facebook. But on the other hand, it can also be bad because of the echo chamber effect where you're only really exposed to views that you already believe in, so preaching to the converted, and that's just amplified and amplified and amplified, and then you never get to be exposed to any contrary views, which is pretty important, I think, for you to develop like a develop into a well-rounded human being. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the consequences of technology today, like social media algorithms, how can that can affect um, you know, what you're exposed to. Absolutely. But there's also another point the author makes about how um, that in some ways it also has like a, in, in a different direction, it has that effect. So you're being exposed to stuff. Um, and also because of the image you present to the world, you're, you're presented as this really cold uh, person. So you're trimmed and culled and uh, people only get to see a certain side of you or a very sort of, um, I guess, a very one-dimensional view of like what a human being is mm. and then sometimes it has especially with younger people it has that effect where when they see that then that reflects back on their own image of themselves so I think it's more the case with people who are probably in their early 20s now um, mm. so the sort of later millennials where you've got you know filters on Instagram and stuff like that where you know like a back in the day when we all took photographs and stuff you would sometimes have nice ones sometimes bad ones yes there was a little bit of basic you know, photoshopping and stuff, but it, it wasn't on the kind of scale that exists now. But now, whatever you're putting out, you can immediately filter it, soften uh. your features, make them more symmetrical, so that you get to the point where that's all you've ever seen of yourself. So yourself in the mirror actually would be more alien, you know? So that's reflected back to you. So that then changes your perception of yourself, which is uh. such a dangerous thing, I think, because that's not, that never was really you. That's just you filtered through via social media apps. Um, but now that's messed with your own idea of yourself. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it also brings into question social uh, um, influences that, um, you know, operate on uh, social media. And, um, you know, they're, um, it's kind of like a commercial business and it can really distort uh, the image of, of um, these people that are influencers. And, and then I think it can have a... a you know, sort of adverse effect on young people, on the, their sense of their own image and self-esteem. Yeah. So it's a little bit disturbing, isn't it? It is, it is. And there's another interesting thing where on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, I mean, anyone who looks at the discussion threads, it is so easy for people to fall into abuse. It's almost like all decorum sort of goes out the window. Like what you would normally never say mm. in polite society or outside of the house, people feel very comfortable sort of spewing that outside so in some ways if you think about it like that part of your psyche that you suppress you're no longer doing that which on one hand you could say okay well that's a healthy thing but on the other hand actually it isn't like your worst sort of impulses it's almost like having someone be able to read your mind I mean you don't mm. want that because you know it's not the best of things yeah that vitriolic that you sometimes read on social media yeah uh, can be so damaging, you and know, and um, it's it's often cited, uh, you know, as like akin to bullying. Yeah, exactly. Obviously. And it's not how people often wouldn't react in like face to face that way, but on social media, it's almost like there's permission to act mm. um, as your worst self, and that effect it would have not just on the person receiving the abuse, but your own self. Like you'd be, I think, corroded on the inside by 
you know, that guilt associated with saying all of that, which you wish you hadn't. Um, and that would, I think, harm your inner self as well. So the author talks about that. Yeah. Um, and it, the, the author makes a really good other point about this constant state of distraction so that your inner feelings, well, basically it's the same point really, that your inner feelings actually live on the surface in the digital world. So you've got nothing that's inside you private anymore. And I know, you know, a hundred years ago, it was all about, you know, you just need to, you know, you, you don't share or overshare. And in the modern world, we're encouraged to, to share, to talk about our feelings, but this takes it almost to that sort of perverse level where your worst, the worst thoughts you're ever having, you feel completely comfortable putting them out there. Um, basically living on the surface so that you've got no layer between yourself and the world anymore. Like it's all, mm. it's all out there for people to see. It's a disturbing trend. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's a very uh, uh, elucidating uh, yeah. essay, isn't it? It is. So it was a really interesting essay and it, it, that's what it mostly talks about, the, the, the impact on our inner life. Like mm. how, what you put out there, but also on, you know, um, on social media, through different technology mediums, but also what you take in. So that sort of a effect it's having on your inner self. Um, and I think it ties well with the other ones as well, where you've talked about your relationship with yourself, how that is impacted. Whereas the other two ones, I think they talk about your relationship with other people filtered through technology. So it's that filtering that technology does in terms of human relationships. Um, and you know, that, that filter, what effect that has. I think people just need to really think about that. Indeed. So I think we've discussed a, a nice variety of um, books that we have in our library here at City of Parramatta that, you know, reflect human beings and uh, modern technology. So look, we invite you to come in and uh, borrow these books, look uh, on our catalogue. And uh, well, it's been really good um, having you here today, Nissa. I'm signing off and... Yeah. I'm signing off too, just to let you know, if you would like to hear more about our talk, as Catherine said, our podcasts are available on the library website via our blog, Power Reads, or you can find us directly on iTunes or Podbean, the app. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. The material presented in this podcast is for general information only. Any opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of City of Parramatta Council. City of Parramatta Council is not responsible for any injury, loss or damage which you may directly or indirectly suffer in connection with this podcast. <laughs>